Well, you've probably heard the term uh, worldview. Everyone has one, and it shapes what they do. What is a worldview? A worldview is the lenses, the conceptions through which you view everything. Everyone has one, a worldview. And as Christians, we have a worldview, a biblical worldview based in the scriptures. And it conflicts with the worldviews of those around us. Uh, that's, there's, it's unavoidable in a fallen world that God is redeeming that we have a worldview, a biblical worldview through the scriptures. And it's, it's going to, if we're faithful to proclaim the gospel as we are charged to do, there is unavoidably going to be a clash of worldviews, and that's going to cause friction, and it's going to cause differences. Well, that was also true for Israel, the nation of Israel on the plains of Moab about to enter the promised land. The children of the Exodus generation, after 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, they are sitting on the edge of the promised land. They're about to go in. They're about to conquer these nations. They're about to claim the land that God has promised to them. And what we talked about last week is Genesis is written for them. Genesis is written for that generation of Israel. It's designed to shape their identity and their worldview because as they go in, they're going to clash with the worldviews of the nations surrounding them. You need to think about geography uh, when you think about Genesis, not just because of what it contains in terms of geography, but also where is Israel in relation to everyone else. You see, as Israel is about to enter the land of Canaan, it just came out of one of the largest superpowers of the day, Egypt. And Egypt had its worldview. It had its worldview of many gods and the gods who brought everything into existence and, uh, and, and, uh, and all the forces of nature that are tied with those gods. It came out of there. And then up to the north and east, there's Mesopotamia and the nations up there. And they have their worldview uh, with all of the gods that are associated with creation and all of the forces of those gods that are still operative in creation. And even in the land that Israel is about to walk into, into Canaan, there are the Canaanites with their worldview, with their gods, who, with their own creation stories and the, the, the gods that are tied with the elements of creation. So you can understand, here's this nation that God has chosen, that God is working through, that he's revealed truth to, about to go into and interact with not just these nations, but their worldviews. And as God's chosen people, they are the representatives of a biblical worldview. And there's going to be inherent clash. They need to be anchored in their worldview in order to be a light to the nations, in order to be distinct and visible to the nations. So as we talked about last week, Genesis forms identity, but especially as we enter Genesis 1 and the creation story, the creation narrative, the purpose of it is not just to record historical facts, although that is true, but to shape how Israel is thinking in relation to the other nations. Now, I'll give you this caveat as we continue to walk through Genesis. Uh, we talked last week about the whole plot of Genesis from beginning to end. There's a focus on a people and a land and a rule, a kingdom, a kingdom that includes a people and a land and a rule. 
And what we said is just like any story, just like any history, just like any narrative, Genesis 1 through 4 in particular sets up everything else. Not only does it set up the plot of Genesis, but it sets up the plot of the rest of the Bible. So what that means for us is we're going to go relatively slow through Genesis 1 through 4. You know, some of you have said, well, Matthew is 28 chapters, and it took you this long, so Genesis is 50, so Lord willing, it's not going to be like that, but I do want us to spend specific uh, intimate time with Genesis 1 through 4, because if we get this right, if we get the foundations right, if we understand the beginning, then the rest of the biblical storyline falls into place. If you get this wrong, just like you're off a little bit on an angle, maybe, maybe you're starting on a journey, uh, whether by plane or by boat, and it, you know that if you have a long journey, and if you're off by just a few degrees, you could be off by miles by the time we get to the end. So our pace through Genesis 1 through 4 will be slower. So we're only going to cover verses 1 through 5 today, Lord willing, but it's important. We'll speed up, Lord willing, after we get through Genesis 4. Like I said, as we get to Genesis 1, as we get to the creation narrative, it's not just about what God is doing. It is about that. It is not just about the facts, but it's those facts and the worldview that it presents in contrast to the nations around it. And so the big idea for Israel and for us would be this, shape up your worldview. God alone began ordering the cosmos through his word and spirit. That's where the text is taking us this morning. Shape up your worldview. God alone began ordering the cosmos through his word and his spirit. Let us start in Genesis 1.1. Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, as you might expect, there is debate about how does this verse function in relation to the rest of the account? And I'm going to boil down many views into essentially two. This is either the first act of creation that God is acting here, and this is the first instance of the account of creation, or it's a summary of what God is about to do. And as you can tell by the title, I take it as a summary. This is an opening summary of the beginning. Uh, why do I take it as a summary? And what do I mean by the summary? Well, what I mean is this is kind of a broad statement that encapsulates everything that God is about to do in days one through six. Why do I take it that way? Well, if we were to read, and you've probably read Genesis 1 multiple times, but notice if we go on through chapter 2, and especially chapter 2-1, remember the first section of Genesis, remember that Genesis is segmented by those statements, these are the generations of, well, the first, these are the generations of, is in verse 4, and so the first kind of block of the book of Genesis is 1-1 through 2-3, but you notice even in 2-1, notice what it says, thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the hosts of them. Well, that's a literary device known as a uh, inclusio, or if you want a, a more everyday analogy, a bookend. We've got in 1 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and then by 2 1, thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. That gives us a clue that really 1 1 is a summary of what God is about to do. Uh, another evidence that I think this is to be taken as a summary 
is uh, notice what's being created here, the heavens and the earth. Well, if you skip down to day two, notice this in verse eight. God creates an expanse or a firmament. Um, We'll talk about that next week. And God called the expanse heaven. It's the exact same word that he uses in 1.1. And if you go down even to the next day, to day three, uh, verse 10, chapter 1, verse 10, God called the dry land earth. Exact same word that's used in 1.1. Notice that in a short span of a few verses, we're using the same language. And what is it describing in day two and day three? Well, it's describing the heavens, meaning if you're standing on earth, you look up, an Israelite looks up, and they see the sky, the heavens. And uh, what are they standing on? They're standing on the earth, the dry land. So really the translation earth, um, you could translate it as land. Remember what we talked about in Genesis, how uh, there's this focal point of a people, a place, a land, and a rule. Well, what is God doing in the creation account? He is setting up for that. He is setting the stage for what human beings will be in this environment that he's created. So when we read 1-1, we have to read from the perspective of an ancient Israelite. What would they have understood? They would have been thinking about, well, I'm standing on the dry land, the earth, and I look up and I see the heavens. And so our perspective in 1-1, what God is creating is he's saying, uh, he's creating the cosmos, but the cosmos perceived how an Israelite would have perceived it. I'm standing on the dry land. That's part of the main division of the cosmos from an Israelite perspective. And I'm looking up to the heavens. You will notice as you walk through the rest of Genesis 1 that it is written from the perspective of a human being on earth. How do I know that? Well, if you go to day four, uh, day four, 114, and God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens and to separate the day from the night and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years and let them be, be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so, and God made two great lights, the greater light, referring to the sun, to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. Now think about that from what we know from astronomy. Uh, The greater light is the sun. From our perspective, that is true. If we look up into the sky, we see the sun. And it's a greater light. It gives more light. And even though like the last couple nights, we've had a full moon and it's like lit up everything. You look outside and it's lit up everything. It's a lesser light. But from astronomy, we know there are stars bigger than the sun. And yet here they're presented as smaller than the sun. They're presented as smaller lights. So you understand that Genesis 1 is written from the perspective of someone who has their feet on the dry land, like an ancient Israelite would. They see the cosmos around them. They perceive of it as the earth, the dry land, the heavens, and the seas. Now, even saying that, even saying that, we understand it comes back to where we began with, that uh, Genesis is written in such a way to both connect with their neighbors, those whom they're interacting with, They each have a worldview, and they each have a perception of the cosmos. And the way things are framed in Genesis 1, they are framed in such a way that they articulate what God is doing, but also that you're able to compare with what the neighbor's accounts are, the neighboring nations. There's similarity and there's difference. There's comparison, there's contrast. 
There's enough to connect with what the nations think of and perceive of the earth, but only just enough so that there is the ability for this account, for God's account, to contrast. So when we read 1-1, I don't know if you've done this. I certainly have, and I think there's plenty of picture books that do this. We read it um, as if, from our current knowledge of astronomy. In the beginning, God created outer space and the globe. That's how we read it, isn't it? That's how we automatically perceive. But we have to step into the shoes of the ancient readers and understand that's not how they're thinking about it. They're thinking about it of heavens, what's up there, and the earth. And that's what we see God create. He talks about creating the heavens and the earth in day two and day three. So if God talks about creating the heavens and the earth in day two and day three, and yet one one talks about them, we've got to be talking about the same thing, and we've got to have a summary. We've got to have a summary. This fits well also with how each day begins. How does each day, uh, day begin, day two through day six, what begins? How does it start? We can skip down to say day two, and it says this, and God said, day two, day three, and God said, uh, even in the second part in day two, um, day three, God said, and day four, and God said. So each day is starting with God's speech. Now, if we extrapolate that back, when does day one begin? Verse three, and God said. So what is going on then in 1-1 is a summary of what God is about to do. That fits well with the rest of the structure of Genesis. Remember how each uh, Genesis is segmented. These are the generations of. So 2-4, we get that first statement. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. 5-1, that's our second one. And these is, this is the book of the generations of Adam and so on and so forth. So often people will say, well, there's no heading to the first account. But if 1-1 is a summary, then it fits nicely with that whole structure. What are the implications of taking Genesis 1-1 as a summary? Well, a couple things we can say. Let's read 1-1 again. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It's summarizing what's going on in days 1 through 6. Thus, when we talk about God creating, it is referring to all that he does in days 1 through 6. What does God do in days 1 through 6? Well, many things. Some things he just calls into existence from nothing. Other things he shapes and makes. Other things he separates. Then he names those things. All of that activity is lumped under the idea of God creating. He's creating like a master craftsman. He's shaping like a master sculptor. Second implication from taking Genesis 1-1 as a heading is the beginning. In the beginning, well, what's the beginning referring to? The beginning is the period of days one through six. That's the beginning. It's the beginning of Moses' account. Now, he goes on through the rest of Genesis and says, this is the generations. These are the ones born of the heavens of the earth or Adam or whoever else. But he's saying, let me take you back to the first moment we need to talk about. Let me take you back to the beginning. And the beginning encompasses the creation period, days one through Six. It's the beginning of the environment that human beings are going to inhabit. The heavens, overhead, and the land, 
beneath. This is the beginning of the cosmos from described, conceptualized from Israel's perspective and from the perspective of the surrounding nations. You see, the Israelites and the surrounding nations, like I've already said, primarily in the first place, they would have thought of the cosmos as heavens above, earth beneath, and the seas underneath. Three divisions to the cosmos. You've got the seas underneath, the land, and the heavens overhead. What's interesting, and we're about to see this in verse 2, many of the nations began their accounts, their creation accounts, with things starting from a watery chaos. When everything was just covered in water, and then the creation starts with there. We can see how Genesis is already setting up to both connect with those ancient accounts, but then to correct them. We need to understand that that's what Genesis 1 is doing. The primary purpose of Genesis 1 is correction of false worldviews. How is it going to correct that? Well, it's going to correct that, emphasizing there's only one sovereign creator, God. Only one. Not many. Only one. And this God doesn't have to overcome anything, any exterior forces. It's not like some other force or other God that he has to overcome and deal with. Well, many, many of the ancient creation accounts, there's a battle. There's a battle between this God and this God, and they fight, and then the result is the victorious God creates creation. That's not how Genesis 1 is framed. There is one God. There's no opposing force to who he is, showing that he is the ultimate one, the only one, the true and living God. Rather than being chaotic or framed in terms of a battle, Genesis 1 is very tranquil. It's, it's, you can picture the master sculptor, the master craftsman creator in his workshop, not opposed by the elements, but shaping them, making them into what he wants to do, ordering them. The elements are neutral. That's the other thing about the uh, ancient cosmologies is that they would often tie something that is in the world, uh, even as it's created, to some god. So there's, there's like a Babylonian account where there's this battle and one god splits another god in half, like lengthwise down the body, and one half becomes the seas and the other half becomes the sky. And so in the Babylonian conception, what's overhead is the, the, the dead skin of a dead god. It's still tied to a God, even though the God is dead, so to speak. Genesis 1 is not like that. There's only one God, and the created elements are not forces in opposition to him. They are neutral elements that God is in complete control over. So as we walk into Genesis 1, as we even think about Genesis 1-1, Genesis 1-1 is a summary, and it's introducing us to and correcting, it's introducing us to a proper biblical worldview, but it's a worldview that is for Israel correcting the worldviews of those around it. I can give you an illustration of how this would work in our day. We would actually do something like this. If I was to say to you, in the beginning, God spoke, and bang, the universe began. What am I alluding to? I'm alluding to the Big Bang, aren't I? which is a false worldview. 
it is a false worldview because all it assumes is that matter and energy is all that there is. But by describing creation in those terms, what am I doing? It I'm invoking it only to correct it. That is exactly how Genesis 1 is working. It is correcting the false worldviews of the nations around it. So Moses begins saying, let's, let's, let me take you to the beginning, at least the beginning of the environment that God is going to create for humans, a people, a place, and a land. Let me take you back there. This is where we need to start the story, the narrative. Now, having given a summary about what he is about to talk about, we need to talk about Genesis 1-2. And just like any good narrator, uh, Moses is going to give us some background to the start of God's order. And that's exactly what Genesis 1-2 is. It is background to the start of creation. Remember, day one doesn't start till 1-3. And so what is happening in 1-2? It is background to the order that God is creating. What's nice about this is in Hebrew, which is how this is written in the original, that's how Moses wrote it, uh, the sentence structure indicates in verse 2 that this is background information. When you're in a narrative storytelling mode, there are certain clues that a Hebrew writer would give you to clue you in this is background. And that's exactly what Moses does. He uses a narrative form that clues us in that verse 2 is background information. So what does it say? Verse 2. The land, that's how I'm going to refer whenever you see earth, it's just referring to the land. The land was without form and void. Now, what is this? This is the first clause in a series of three clauses that are going to describe, they're going to describe the background of information we need to know before God starts creating. And what he says is first, the land is without form or formless and void. What does he mean by void? It's just empty. Uh, it, this is kind of interesting. I'll read you a little bit in the original. Uh, you see how that rhymes? That are the two words, formless, formless and void, formless and empty. These words are used elsewhere, actually in scripture, to describe basically like a desert. Uh, it's formless. It's there, but it's, uh, it's, it's, it's got no form to it. It's got no structure. And not only does it have no structure, it's empty. It's empty, like a desert would be empty. Actually, we find out that the land at this point is covered in water. We can kind of infer that a little bit from the, what the rest of verse 2 says, but we can also directly and very explicitly see it in day 3. Go back to day 3. Uh, day three starts in one nine. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth. And the waters that were gathered together, he called seas. And God saw that was good. So you see what happens? The land is there. God didn't say, let there be land. He said, let the waters be gathered together so that the land can appear. The land already exists in verse 2. But the problem with the land is it has got no form and it's empty. It's covered with water. It's a water desert. Nothing can exist on this land. And think about where Genesis is going. Genesis is setting up for what? A people, 
a land, a place, and a rule. So that's the first issue in verse 2. The land was empty and uh, land was formless and empty. Now, you need to pay attention to that, formless and empty, because God's going, in the rest of the account, remember this is background information, so he's setting the stage for the rest of the account. The rest of the account uh, fixes that. Because what God does is that he gives form to everything. He gives form to the land in particular. And not only does he give form to it, but he fills it. By the end in 2.1, remember what it says, the heavens and the earth were finished and all their hosts. There's form and then there's, they're filled. But that's not the only issue that's going on. Go back to verse 2, look at the next sentence. The land was without, was formless and empty and darkness was over the face of the deep. Now let's start with the deep. The deep is like deep ocean. That's what this word indicates, like deep water. Uh, it's been kind of interesting. I, I, I like um, nature shows like Planet Earth and um, the Blue Planet. So I've been watching through the Blue Planet recently. And they have a couple episodes, and they just go in the submersible deep, deep, deep down. And things get really weird when you go in the deep ocean, okay? But that's the conception here is we've got just water, deep water, and only water. Um, and not only just water, but notice what the verse is saying. It's saying darkness over the face of the deep, darkness over the surface of the waters. So everything, it's not just that there's water and only water everywhere. It's pitch black. Now, sometimes we think, um, and sometimes you see this illustrated in, in books that are trying to narrate Genesis 1, and you kind of, like, it kind of gives like maybe a little bit of like it pictures water and like gives you, you to be able to picture or see anything you need light. So the water can be there, but you wouldn't see it. I don't know if you've ever been like in a very dark cave. Have you ever gone underground, maybe, you know, some tour of a cave somewhere and they shut off the lights for a little bit. You can't see nothing. Or maybe you've been in a tunnel that's long enough that you can't see both ends and you turn off the lights. It is pitch black. You can't see anything. You need light to see anything. So the water's there. The land is there. But it's pitch black. Can't see anything. And you've got formless and empty land. Now, again, this is enough to connect with the, it's the, the Israel's neighbors. Like I said, uh, whether you're looking at Egypt or maybe Canaan or maybe Mesopotamia, they have their creation accounts, and they often start with a watery chaos. And so there's enough clues here to start here, but this isn't chaos. This is, this is just, it's just there. And it's just stuff that's unformed and unhelpful for man. I mean, God exists. He's there. Why, how do we know that? Well, notice what the next clause is, right? And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Now, the Hebrew word for spirit, it's the same in the New Testament for the Greek word, actually. It, it, it can either be rendered spirit, and here it is referring to the Spirit of God, or it can also refer to wind or breath. 
And here there's uh, what we call a double entendre. There's this picture of everything's completely black, it's watery, but here we also have this idea that it's not that God is absent, God is there. It's not that any of these forces are out of control or outside of God's sovereignty. No, God is there. The Spirit of God is there. It's hovering. Uh, this word there that's used for the Spirit of God, hovering, it's only used one other time in this form in uh, Genesis, or excuse me, Deuteronomy 32.11, talking about an eagle like hovering over its young. So this is a picture of the Spirit of God there. God is there. Nothing is outside of God's control. He is over it. And not only that, there's the nurturing presence of the wind of God over these waters. Why is the Spirit there? Well, I think it's setting this, well, like I said, this is background information. It's setting the stage for the rest of the creation account. What you will see is that the formlessness is fixed. The emptiness gets fixed. The darkness gets fixed. In fact, the darkness is about to get fixed on day one. Right? God is reversing these things that are in a not good state. He's reversing them. But never at any point is there an illusion that uh, the Spirit of God hovering over the waters is fixed. Why is that? Because that is giving us different information. That is giving us information that the Spirit's ready. The Spirit's ready to carry out what God wants done. How God creates in Genesis 1 is through the word, and we understand that because each day starts with, and God said. But he creates not just through his word, he creates through the spirit that is there in verse 2. And that's how it always is in scripture, that God creates through his spirit and his word. And we'll talk more about that in a little bit. Now, What's the state of things before day one? Dark, water, pitch black, formless and empty. There's stuff there. Now, as soon as I say that, some of you are thinking, what? There's stuff there before day one? Are you saying that there's eternal matter next to God? Are you saying that God needed stuff to start creating? No, I'm not saying that. Uh, go to Proverbs. Go to Proverbs 8. And there are many places we could go that would debunk the idea that the stuff that's there in verse 2 is, is eternal. That it's uncreated. It is not uncreated. It is created. The rest of Scripture would tell us such. Proverbs 8 is one of those places. I'll take you to a couple more as well, or at least one more. Look at Proverbs 8. 22. Now, this is a hymn of wisdom. So Solomon is talking about wisdom and how awesome it is and amazing it is. And so wisdom is personified here and wisdom is speaking. Um, so Proverbs 8.22, Yahweh possessed me at the beginning of his work, the first of his acts of old. Ages ago, I was set up at the first before the beginning of the earth when there were no depths. And that word right there is the same basic word as our, that's in Genesis 1-2, deep. So before there were depths, when there were no depths, I was brought forth. When there were no springs abounding with water, again, referring to that same reality of the, the watery depths. So there's a time when those things don't exist. There's a time when the things in Genesis 1-2 don't exist, and Scripture talks about it. Uh, you could see this also in the New Testament. Go to Hebrews. Go to Hebrews. 
11.3. Chapter on faith. And um, one of the things that the author of Hebrews says right away, says this in verse 3 of chapter 11. By faith, we understand that the universe, literally the ages, we understand that the ages were created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Now, you know, you look back at verse two and we said everything's pitch black, you can't see anything. But the implication is, is that that stuff, the stuff that's there is still created by God. So what's going on in Genesis 1 then? Genesis 1 is just not interested in where that stuff came from. It's not pertinent to Moses' aims. He is in no way saying, Moses is not saying, that stuff is outside of God's control or it was just there always. No, that stuff was brought into creation too. But what is Moses doing? Remember the point of this chapter. He is framing things in such a way that he can connect with Israel's neighbors, but then to critique their worldview. Now, you might pick up and say, well, wait a minute then. If there's stuff before day one, that allows for a period of time, perhaps even a long period of time before day one. Yes, it does. Does it demand it? No. Text just isn't interested in talking about that. That's not what the text is doing. Some people have taken that and say, oh, see, there's a gap there, and that means evolution can happen there. No, this is not allowed for macroevolution according to modern biology. How do I know that? Well, the rest of the creation account precludes that option. Again, what is Moses interested in doing? He's interested in saying, let me give you the proper worldview. Let me give you the proper way of thinking about God and his relation to creation. And we can do a comparison and contrast with the rest of the nations around you and show them that they're false. There's not many gods. There's one God. There's not divine elements and forces. There's only God and everything else. Him working like a master craftsman. So we've got the background to the start of God's order. And then in verse 3, we get the start of day 1. Day 1. God speaks for light to order days. Look at verse 3. And God said... Let there be light. Now, there's nothing other than God. I mean, there's stuff there, right? But it's not, there's no other gods, right? He's, there's no other person. There's no other being. It's just God talking. So he's talking to the elements in verse 2, and he's speaking in what we would call performative speech. I've had the privilege of marrying a couple people, and at some point I say, I now pronounce you husband and wife. At that very moment, I am saying something, but I'm also bringing a reality into existence. Well, this is what God is doing on a supreme scale. He is speaking. He's saying, let there be. That's not just an idea. That's not just a wish. It's a command. Let there be light. And there was light. So now God has started to remedy the darkness that we saw in verse 2. And so God has created this thing called light. He just called it into existence by his word. 
We, know, we understand the Spirit is there, so the Spirit is taking place in this too. But God's not done. He's got this, you can almost think of it, he's got this raw element called light. And then what does he do? Verse 4, and God saw that the light was good. This is like, I don't know if you've ever, you know, maybe you, you, uh, you have some sort of project or craft that you're doing or craftsmanship. Maybe you're a woodworker or a metal worker, or maybe you like to sew or create quilts or whatever. And you, you do something and then you take a step back and you look at it. And hopefully, usually mine is like, oh, that doesn't look that good. Um, but God is saying, this is good. I like what I created. It's also judgment. Uh, when we pronounce things like good or that's, oh, that's good, that's bad, that's not, that's so-so, that's mediocre, we're making a judgment. What is God doing here? He's making a judgment and he's making a moral judgment. He's saying it's good. This is good. This is pleasing. This is right. This is beautiful. Because only God has the ability to make such moral judgments. But not, he's still not done. What does he do next? God separated the light from the darkness. So the darkness is still there. Isn't that interesting? God said, let there be light. And there's light there, but there's still the darkness. God doesn't get rid of the darkness. But he separates the two. He draws a distinction between the two. And, and much of what we see in the rest of the account, we'll see that word again. A lot of crea the creative act is not just bringing the stuff into existence, but separating it, ordering it, putting it in its proper place. And you might say, well, how, how, did that, uh, how does that work? In what way, what separation is God making between light and darkness? Well, verse 5 tells us, because God's not only creating this stuff, he's going to give it a name. In the Ancient conception, when you give something a name, it means you have total control over it, total mastery over it. And what does God do? God called the light day. And the darkness, he called night. So what is he doing? What sort of separation is God making? He's making a temporal separation. He's making a temporal separation. He's creating things in such a way that give order to time. And we get the result of that at the end of verse 5, and there was evening. What is evening? Evening is the passage from light to night, from day to night. That's what evening is. So God just created light, and we get the first evening. That's the next thing that happens. There's an evening as we transition to night. And then this is interesting. I had to puzzle over this for a little bit. And then he says this, there was morning. Now why, why is he talking about there's morning? What is that saying? Well, when we get morning, that's the passage from darkness, from night to light. And then we get this, one day. Literally, that's what it reads in the original. One day. There was evening, there was morning, one day. Now, here's where we got to be really careful. What is one day according to the text? The daytime. That's what God just said. He just called the daytime day. And he called the darkness night. There's evening and there's morning one day. What is the day referring to? The day is referring to the 12-hour period, roughly speaking, of light. Why? 
What does it matter? Well, again, what is God doing? He's setting up for a people and a place and a land, specifically for Israel. Remember, Israel's hearing this. And what are they hearing? They're hearing, God created the workday. What we find in the rest of the account, God only works during the daytime. Every account, it, met, it marks off. It talks about the night. It talks about that morning coming. But it's this, everything that's described, God does during the day. Because he's the prototypical workman. He's the one that gives us our work days. He's the one that structures when we work and when we go to bed. See, this isn't just about God bringing stuff into existence. It's about God ordering existence. Now, some people say, well, wait, 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 wait. It's day one. There's light. Day four... That's when we get the sun and the moon and the stars. So where's the light coming from? That's how we're thinking about it. Where's the light coming from in day one? I really don't think that's that hard of an objection to answer because, again, if you think about the conception of things in the worldview of an ancient Israelite, they'd be like, oh yeah, God's there. His presence gives light. Because that's what they see like in the pillar of fire through the desert and like God's light coming from the tabernacle when he inhabits it. So it's not that hard for them to figure out where's the light coming from. It's coming from God's presence. In fact, if you really wanted to go to the end, Revelation 22, the book, the book end of this, it actually says there's no night anymore, but there's no sun either because God is the light for his people. The source of light displaying, God creates light first to, to, to give an inkling of his gloriousness and majesty. And then he uses some other things later to take over. He uses some lamps to take over for him on day four. What do we learn from this? We're just through day one, but what's this all about? It's all about your worldview. It's all about Israelites world, Israel's worldview as it's interacting with these other nations. It's all about your worldview too. Because your worldview needs to align with the reality of the living God rather than false competing worldviews. One personal God exists, independent of everything else. That's what we get a picture of in Genesis. God is completely independent. He is intimately involved in his creation, but he is completely independent of creation. He doesn't depend on it at all. It depends on him. There's no other forces, no other gods, no other principles that are in competition with God. God is not competing with anyone. He needs not compete with anyone. He has created everything. There's no eternal matter that was just there. That's what the naturalistic worldview would say. There's no competition between God and matter and energy. Rather, God has complete control and rule over his creation. And how does God create? God creates through things that are internal to himself. Both his word and his spirit are internal to himself doesn't need anything outside of himself to create. But if that's true, if all of that's true, you exist in God's world for God's purposes. 
God does not exist for your purposes. You belong to God as part of his creation. He has say and rule over you. The biblical worldview explains reality. Other worldviews cannot. Well, I mentioned naturalism a couple times, and um, naturalism, at least the current form of it that would look back on origins, either has to say one of two things. That the universe had a beginning, and I think, uh, from what I've read, that most scientists, cosmologists, astronomers, whatever, that looking back and looking at the data, they would conclude the universe had a beginning. But what they have to say from a naturalistic standpoint is, at one point, there's just nothing, like nothing, nothing, like there's non-existence, which doesn't even exist. It's, it's, there's just nothing. But then they have to say, since the universe began, there's a point in time when all of a sudden there's matter and energy. Now, nothing comes from nothing. It's, it, I mean, we get this. Child, children get this. Nothing comes from nothing. So the alternative would be to say, and this, this is even in ancient times was proposed, that maybe everything that is, it's just eternal matter and energy. Matter and energy. So the stuff has just always been there. The stuff and the energy is all, all the, only that what there is. Okay, so you solve the problem of matter and energy coming being existence. It's just always there. It's just eternal. But where did things like good and evil, where did things like beauty come from? Where did people come from? Because unless you want to just say that we're each a bag of chemicals with like electrical signals going on in our brain, and that's all we are, is just a bag of chemicals with some kind of electricity thrown in, I think we would, none of us would want to say that's all we are. If you, that is what you believe that people are, then that's why you can get away with murdering people and creating atrocities for your own ends, and it doesn't matter. So then you have, but if you say, no, people are more than just a bag of chemicals with some electrical signals going on, then where did persons come from? See, a naturalistic worldview cannot explain that. Or maybe you say, okay, uh, I'm, I don't have a naturalistic worldview. I believe in things like gods and spirits. You know, I'm a polytheist, or maybe, maybe um, you know, there's many gods, or, you know, some version of that. And you say, I say, okay, so maybe, maybe there are multiple gods and spirits, maybe like, uh, maybe like Israel's neighbors. That's what they believed in. How can you guarantee that good will win out? You see, we all have this innate sense and knowledge that good's always going to win. We know that. Somehow we know that good's always going to win. But if you live in a world with multiple principles or multiple gods and spirits, how can you guarantee that? But the biblical worldview can explain that. There's only one good and sovereign God. There's only one who gets to pronounce what's good and what's beautiful and what's right or maybe, maybe you're here this morning, and here's, I think a lot of people just live this way. I just don't care. Like, it's kind of the just live and don't worry about it worldview, right? Like, I don't care where the universe came from. It's here. And I get to live in it, and I get to play in it, and I get to shape it and mold it to my will. So I'm just going to live for the good life here and now. 
And I would challenge you, how do you know what's good? How do you know in the way that you're living? And you're like, well, good is how I define it. Great, but how do you know that that's actually the best way to live? See, you have no basis for determining what's good and what's evil, if that's the case. So you have to be concerned about why do things like good and evil exist? And someone might answer back, yeah, okay, you're saying the biblical worldview, there's one God who has created everything and we live and exist for him. But what about all the darkness in the world? What about all the evil? This is like atheist's uh, primary objection. What about evil? If there's an all-good, all-powerful God in the world, what about evil? Well, evil is in the world because of you, because of humanity, because of our darkness and evil and wickedness, and that we are born enslaved to do what is wrong. And we know it's wrong because God has given us a conscience to tell us that it's wrong. What about the biblical worldview? Genesis 1 doesn't describe how God's going to get rid of human evil. Later on, the story will set up for that. But, but in the New Testament, we get the answer to human evil. Go to 2 Corinthians 4. Second Corinthians 4, verse 3, Paul says this, And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world, referring to Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of God, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants, for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God, in the face of Jesus Christ. The biblical worldview accounts for evil and darkness in the world because God sent his son to be a substitute sacrifice for human evil on the cross. The eternal weight of wrath that human beings deserve was meted out to God's son on the cross such that those who have repentance and faith, swearing allegiance to Jesus, following Jesus, being his disciples, are counted not guilty. Their evil is dealt with then. There's also God giving the ability through his spirit to live righteously. But then in the final state, because God has dealt with evil by putting it on the shoulders of his son, And because God has cleansed out evil from his people, they can live in a place, in a new heavens and a new earth. You see, the word and the spirit are still the answer for human darkness. John 1, as we all know, calls Jesus the word. The incarnate word, here is Jesus speaking into a dark and sinful world. And through all who did receive him, to those who believe in his name, he gave the right to be called children of God born of God's will and not their own. This is why we are word-centered people. Genesis 1 explains why we are word-centered people. Why, why, why do we always read the word, sing the word, preach the word, display the word through baptism and the Lord's Supper, 
pray the word. Why do we do those things? Because we understand that God works in the world through his word and his spirit. I can say all of the, the words up here um, through, from the scriptures, but unless the spirit is there to empower it, enliven it, make it happen. But this is why we do what we do, because just as God created a new world through his word and his spirit, so he creates new life and ongoing life through his word and through his spirit. So shape up your worldview. God alone began ordering the cosmos through his word and through his spirit. Let's pray. Father, you are the one true, only, and living God. In you, we live and move and have our being. Everything that we see, everything that we encounter, as far as creation is concerned, is, is ultimately, it, it comes back from you. You are the uncaused cause, the unmoved mover. You are the sovereign one. Lord, we go out this week and we encounter many false worldviews. I pray that we would live in light of the reality of the true worldview. Lord, you create through your word and spirit, and we understand that there's evil in the world, evil that you will ultimately conquer and are conquering. But we know that you, we need the evil in our own hearts conquered first. And that happens through your son that you have sent. Through the word of the gospel and the power of the spirit applying the gospel to our hearts such that it calls forth for repentance and faith and following allegiance to your son, the Lord Jesus. Help us as we go this week. Help us to proclaim the gospel. Help us to rely on your word and your spirit. Lord, you are awesome and great. We long for the day when there will be no more night, when we will dwell in your presence. There's no sun or moon or any of that stuff. The sea will be no more, and all there will be is enjoying you together as your people in your kingdom ruling alongside Christ for all eternity. We long for that, and we look forward to that. Praise you in the name of Jesus. Amen.